Good afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. This is usually a live uh, one-hour interview with, with people like yourselves, listeners that can call in, but we're still in our pandemic mode, so we will um, not have any callers. No one will be able to call today. It's, this has been pre-recorded, but it, um, in the future, I think we will have the ability for the listeners to call in, but not today. Typically, it's every our show is every fourth Thursday at four o'clock. I also always like to remind my listeners that I do have a another radio show. It's a short, seven thirty in the morning on Sundays, prime time, and it's called Pet Sounds. I've been doing that for about twelve years. It's just short topics on anything related to animals and pets. Uh, today, I have my guest is Mr. Al May who is a public health liaison for the CDC for the state of Maine, but he's not here for that. He's here because he is a farmer, a what I call a gentleman farmer, as a, we'll find out if it's an occupation or just a hobby. And uh, I wanted to bring him on because I think there are a lot of people who are interested in getting back to the earth, so to speak, and he's doing it. And he's, I think, can share a lot of ideas and stories that will help us. Uh, good morning, Al. How are you? Morning, John. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's, it's a pleasure having you. For uh, uh, disclosure here, uh, Al and I have known each other for many years because the farm he is on, he bought from my family. And uh, I knew that farm since I was 12 years old. It, it wasn't a farm when we bought it. My family bought it. It was a uh, just a farmhouse and, and Alice turned it into a farm. But so I know that area. I know his farm intimately as a, as a child. So I have a special interest in Al's story. So Al, how did you get to, how did you get to Maine? Well, I was in Connecticut back in uh, 2000. Uh, I was finishing up a joint master's degree in public health and environmental science at Yale university. And in that summer of 2000, the lab that I worked at, came up to Mount Desert Island Biological Laboratory and in Bar Harbor. And uh, they, they started a program there uh, looking at cellular biology, cellular uh, molecular biology. And um, I, would manage, I would manage the lab in New Haven, but I'd have to come up to Bar Harbor about once every two weeks to, to bring supplies up to this other lab in Bar Harbor. And by doing that, you know, driving cross the bridge into Kittery and then coming up the line and go to Belfast and going to into Bar Harbor. It just started building a, a love affair for Maine. Uh, it's amazing when you cross that bridge, you just feel like you're in a different world after leaving New Hampshire. So um, I used to come up and then uh, the Maine Bureau of Health at the time, around 2003, 2004, there was a new initiative that uh, federal CDC was putting out called the Environmental Public Health Tracking program and they were trying to hire but there was a hiring freeze so i met the state epidemiologist around 2003 started corresponding he couldn't hire anybody uh but at the time in 2004 i went up for an interview and actually got the position of an epidemiologist and comprehensive health planner for that program also working in childhood lead poisoning and uh, environmental public health tracking as well as becoming the program coordinator for the occupational disease program. Um, 
So that was all going on in 2004 uh, when I first came to Maine. The first place I lived, I was fortunate to find a uh, caretaker job, find a caretaking job in a house on a 100-acre dairy farm in Monmouth, which is right outside of Augusta. And there I had a chance to start beekeeping, raise ducks and pigs, and basically have a small subsistence garden. And in 2006, as John mentioned, I drove up to Trescott, Maine, which is quite a ways from Augusta, and I bought the current home, which was the farm at that time, and uh, have created basically, some people call it a hobby farm, gentleman farm, but there's a large woodlot also uh, here, and this is part of Washington County. If people don't know where Trescott is, it's an unorganized territory uh, adjacent to Lubeck, so it's quite a ways up the coast, and you know, Campobello Island is right across away from us. So, so when, when you said you just from Augusta, you just simply drove up to Trescott. What drew you to Trescott? The, the fact that there was a, a farmhouse for sale was it the that drew you to, or did you know the area, of Trescott, or did no? You um, to be a farmer. Or? I so I I for about uh, 2002 to, to 2000. I mean, sorry, about 2004 to 2006. I was looking, I mean, I had the farm in Monmouth, but there was no way I was going to buy that farm. And I just wanted that, that type of a situation. So I, was, I started laying out a criteria for myself of, you know, 100 acres, a woodlot, uh, maybe some fields to work on, something to basically regenerate that may have been, you know, left alone for years. If it had a farmhouse, that was great. Worked with uh, a bank, worked with a realtor, and basically started using Augusta as a central part and then started circling out. Initially looked at Waldo County and Hancock County because they were obviously a little closer. I didn't, I didn't have a job up this way. I was going to have to be in Augusta for jobs. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to keep going. Uh, and I went up to Washington County, started looking areas. And uh, one day I um, was driving. I had a couple of places I went to and they were both all, there were three disappointments and I couldn't find your farm. I couldn't find the Jones road. And, <laughs> and um Things are a little bit hazy up there. Yeah. So I couldn't find it. And I said, oh, my God, this day has just been a disaster. And so I am going to just drive. And I took the outside road that goes to Cutler um, and drove it. And then this beautiful valley opened up, this river valley with a a view out into the ocean and um, one of the Canadian islands out there. And all of a sudden, there's Jones Road. (laughs) And I uh, said, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? And I went up that road. And I actually went past the farm that I bought into your other farm, right. the White House. And I said, I don't know where this farm is. I can't find it. And so I drove back. I kept looking. I, then I found a small driveway uh, that was basically overrun by trees. And I had a small vehicle. And I said, I'm going to just club there and see. And it was going into, it was like going into the secret garden. <laughs> I got up there and there were uh, grouse and rabbits walking around. It was just like a secret place. I opened the door and it was birds singing and i thought oh my gosh this is it and i looked at the house and it was you know it wasn't in great shape but no, we, uh, we didn't was, do much to it right and but it still had it meant i looked at you know all around was pretty much uh, forested all around it wasn't very clear but you could see there was remnants of maybe an old barn and um, some fields at one time so um i called uh the realtor and they said geez you're in luck because they just dropped the price uh, well, that's, he told me that at least. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. I called my realtor and I said, let's put a, a bid on it. And, um, it was, it's so I bought it. We had some issues though, because the water hadn't run for a while. So we had to check the well, there was no electricity. So I had to turn the electricity on all the things that you do when you have a rural property that it sits for a while and you want to try to buy it. So, you know, the banks, 
and the feds that are servicing these loans um, want everything to look like it's copacetic. Right, <laughs> so right. you have to you have to get that stuff done first. So it took a while. Uh, I think I found the place in August, uh, maybe it's August of 2006, and the sale didn't go through until the end of December. Lucky they didn't really take a close look at the foundation, right? <laughs> foundation wasn't too bad. I mean, I had to do an I had to have an appraisal come out, and I had also a person do a whole inspection, and they found a few issues. I mean, the 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 heat hadn't had been working for a while, and there were some other things. And plus, uh, the house had a number of of interesting guests living there. I had raccoons living there uh, that I had to get out, and uh, they had taken over part of the house, and um, alive and dead. And uh, so it was it was an interesting uh, and and. Uh, um, I actually didn't live in it the first winter. I was up and down because uh, b- back and forth. I still lived in Augusta area, so it's um, it was quite a drive. Uh, but the first uh, winter there, I had a they had a, I had to put a new roof on the place, so that's where I put a metal roof, and then also got a heat source for the place. So, and that was the propane uh, vented heater. So, so you uh, had a preconception. Uh, you're looking for a, a farmhouse. With you said fields and woods, you wanted woods because you wanted and and if possible water, a, a, a groundwater source, a lake, a stream, and so it didn't really have that, but it had a lot of springs, and so there was water running all the time, and so one of the things that was important to me, which I'd learned from uh, land management and having sort of an ethic around land, was that you conserve water in some way. And that led, uh, John obviously knows this, but I said a lot, the acre above the house before you get into heavy forest was all, um, I would say, five to six foot uh, tall of rose bushes, wild roses, and uh, alder. You could just imagine the thickets. And it was all wet underneath it. It was was not really an official wetlands, but it was sort of a wetlands. It was always kind of wet back there. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I worked with... um, some folks from NRCS, so the water conservation, they came out, they helped me, and then I got a contractor, and it was actually his first one, and he dug um, a 16-foot deep a trout pond for me because I wanted to raise trout, and then we engineered it so the trout pond uh, emptied into a smaller, what I call the frog pond, which is about four foot deep, and then it was engineered to actually capture that water and then feed it back to the original stream that it went into. So it was a diversion project, but it was basically the idea was having a place where I'm holding water. And so having that water there as a source was important. Number one, I'm off the grid, and so there was a fire, and a fire you know, needed to come some water. I had a lake there, obviously, for, for a water source, but also because of animals. And just the idea in the wintertime when if I had a freeze up in the house, I'd have a backup water supply. Um, so that was it. And uh, again, trouts, uh, I had that larger pond. You have to have a certain depth for trout, brook trout and rainbow trout to live uh, because of the, uh, the size of the ponds. And so they need to be at least 12 to 16 feet deep. Uh, because it stays cool and it, it oxygenates because of that. And they need to have that. So I've stocked that pond about every other year with uh, either brook trout or rainbow trout and some nice trout have come out of that, that pond. And then awesome. uh, the other advantage of course has been um, because that wetlands wasn't official wetlands, but it was still there. It was supporting uh, frogs. And so I wanted to make sure that was important. And so I now currently have um, five species of frogs that that cycle through starting typically in uh, April with the wood frogs. And they go into the fall uh, with the green frogs and pickerel frogs and that type of thing. So that was important. 
Um, and I think you mentioned that this, is this a hobby or a vocation? Um, this is really an ethic. Um, I was, I learned many years ago, I would say during the seventies, I learned it from my family, but I also learned it from uh, a class. I had took one of the first environmental ethic classes and I was introduced to a man named Aldo Leopold and Leopold was a, um, wildlife biologist back in the 1920s, 1910, 1920s, one of the first people to work with the Forest Service. And he created a book called the Sand County Almanac. And it's basically the Bible for most land ethic people in the United States and um, really speaks to, it's almost like a Bible. It speaks to the importance of human beings being responsible stewards of their land, water, air, and environment. And so that land ethic has always been with me. I actually learned that when I was a young child from my grandparents, they came over from the old country. One was from Italy, one from Switzerland. And, and they, we lived in Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, they had about an acre of land that they converted. To, uh, they had they fully lived off that, that, that acre of land. They hardly went to the store. They grew Swiss chard and a lot of the stuff they brought over for Europe. They had fig trees, citrus trees. At one time, they had 136 varieties of roses on this property. Now, this is California, and that climate's obviously a lot better for growing things. But I learned... Um, I had grapevines when I was small, apricot trees, various citrus fruits, fig trees, and learning how to, to garden every week and, and took care of things. So that you, you build that, you see that as a model, and then you learn things from reading. And it just was important to me to have that land ethic. And I've had it everywhere I've gone. I lived in New Haven as a student, and I took over the place I was renting and did their whole front yard and their backyard and put in a garden. And um, so it's just part of me. You know, I, I think you have to live and breathe that thing. So I guess maybe it is kind of a vocation in a way. Also a lifestyle. Yeah. You know, uh, cause that's what well, you I did. think that's the term. Of, I mean, ethic is that, that term actually, it, yeah. it builds something inside of you. Yep. Well, you had, it's your pond is like a field of dreams. You, you built it and they will come and they did all the frogs and with frogs and fish, you got the predators coming by too, all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. And I will tell you, um, folks don't think about this because we have a lot of forested land in Washington County. And my in my opinion, it's it's been left to, you know, we had the um, the ice storm back in 97, 98. And a lot of those forests haven't come back. And a lot of people who are land rich, but not really necessarily economically rich, have not been really sustainably thinking about those forests. And so there's a lot of forest land in Washington County, especially the coast, that's just in really bad shape. But I'll tell you, one of the things I learned at Yale, and because um, we were in the field quite a bit doing work, was uh, one of the most important indicator species for biodiversity are salamanders. And when I bought that property, I would go up in the woods and start uh, looking under rocks and, and woody debris to find salamanders and couldn't find it. And I said, okay, I'm going to make a difference here and change things. And so I started opening up uh, forested places, just enough light to get in there to allow some things, but to start laying down what's called a woody debris, uh, large sections of tree and just leave it there on the ground. I mean, it basically rots over time, but it gives it gives insects a place to go. And you're going to say, that's not good, but it is good because they're they're breaking it down into things that are good for the soil, and then you get salamanders. And I will tell you, in the last couple of years, I can go up into the forest. I have the, the salamanders have started showing up, and they're actually laying eggs in the two ponds and in some other vernal pools that I have. And so the salamanders can come back. The, the, these are the spotted ones. They're all black, kind of a deep black with white or yellow spots. And then I have also the, um, the red um, 
uh, what do they call them? Um, I remember the name now. The little red ones. Uh, also, I have. Um, so, so that has been a great thing for me. I, that was a dream when I first bought the place, and now ten years later, I'm seeing those as indicators that something's going right in this place. So, so when you first bought the farm, did you have a plan in your head of like a five-year plan, an objective, or are you just kind of going step by step due to finances or limitations in your house or whatever? Yeah, I made a, so the house is certainly, um, I'm a single person, so the house was fine for me. I've lived in a houseboat in Alaska with no heat and no electricity. So the house there was fine. It, uh, you know, it's, it's almost, I'll tell you, I learned when I lived in Alaska that the Native Americans were provided housing by the federal government. And you could walk into those houses and basically it was a cover for them. It was getting out of the weather. You'd go into their living room and there would be, they would, one, the husband would be, they had just shot a, a seal and he was carving the seal up in the front front room. The kids were watching TV. Mom was in the kitchen uh, cutting, uh, getting the fat and rendering the fat down and it smelled to high heaven. But their, their idea of a house was really just a place to work in. And that's kind of what I've looked at this place. So it's, you know, I've, I've hopefully made it a little more livable, but um no, my, my priority was the land. Uh, I spent a lot of the time going out and limbing trees to get them up to a certain level. So I had people come in and say, this looks like a national park because you could actually walk through without getting limbs in your eye because I would go up eight to 10 feet on trees and limb them to make it a little more light uh, availability. And um, so, uh, so uh, and, the, and the forest is, as you know, John, because you own some of the, a lot of the properties up there, your family, um, we're, 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 we're tree, uh, tree growth and tree growth has 10 year plans. Um, so there was an existing plan there. I've actually, from that time on, have actually created some other specific plans. So I have a wildlife plan on the property. I have a pollinator plan on the property and, um, and a forest management plan. That's actually the next step above a tree growth plan uh, with the idea of certain areas that need to be cleared uh, regeneration uh, opportunities and such like that. So, um, and, and you're going to say, how did you do that? So obviously having a job is helpful in doing that, but it's also having a plan th that says, get out there and do it and find the people that can help you do it. Uh, but NRCS, which is a USDA agency here in every county of Maine, has some great uh, opportunities for people, but you need to make a relationship with them. Uh, I, I applied a number of years and never got anything. And then after a while, they saw that I was persistent. And I also looked for opportunities that Maybe a lot of people didn't look look for. Um, I um, I have a high tunnel. It's uh, 26 by 40, I think it is. And that was gotten through NRCS. They didn't pay for everything, but they gave me quite a bit of a money to get that started. Can you tell listeners what that is? Yeah, a high tunnel is like um, a large greenhouse, but it's uh, quite larger. So it's um, 26 by 40, but it's about an 18-foot top ceiling. Uh, and it's basically used um, as an extension into seasons. So it gives you a kind of an enclosed space for wintertime, saves you from the wind and the snow. Um, and it lets you approximately, if it's uh, 30 degrees out, I mean, if it's 20 degrees outside in the wintertime, it's about 35 in there. And you can actually create smaller beds in there to keep, um, you know, greens like um kale and such like that that are already winter born that they'll actually live all winter long if you can keep it in good shape so they had a program that i could get that that set up well, who did you contact very, very first person usda 
I mean, someone is thinking they want to do what you're doing. Uh, well, I guidance because of my my education and background, I'm, I'm a really good researcher. So I would go online and look at programs. Um, okay. And then there, you know, every county has an office. So in uh, the office is typically in Washington County is in Washington is in Machias. I think the other one in Hancock County is in Ellsworth. Your your viewers are in Waldo. So whatever the uh, major, probably Belfast. I imagine they're probably no, Hancock and Waldo. I mean Hancock and yeah, so Waldo or uh, Ellsworth. Ellsworth probably. For, uh, yeah, 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 and if they're Penobscot, there's probably one in Bangor. So you can go to the USDA, Google it, and NRCS, and they'll tell you where the offices are. And the other group that's good is the Soil and Water Conservation District. They're usually in the same office, and they're great uh, people that know the land real well and can give you great suggestions on what to do. But the funding comes through NRCS. There's certain programs. Um, and NRCS means what? Uh, and I want to say natural resource and something conservation, something. Okay. So some, okay. <laughs> I can look it up, but. But the, but the impression I get is when you go there for help, they really are eager to help uh, citizens. They are, but it's limited. Serious. One of the first things they tell you is the money is limited and you have to, you have to write up a lot of things and really think things out. They don't just, you don't just walk in and say, I, I want, you know, a thousand dollars or $10,000 for this. There's applications, which are, you know, federal government applications are not easy to do. Um, so it takes some time to write that up and get your system in. And then you have to follow their qualifications to get things done. And they give you time frames and, um, that type of thing. So, and I, you know, you have to be, you can't be um, someone who thinks about this and then never follows through. Uh, they don't, they don't like that. <laughs> you need to follow through. If they say yeah. nine months, you have to get the thing built. Uh, don't get me wrong. They'll give you an extension if it's, if it's something they feel, but they really, you can't be a pr uh, pr pr prognosticator. Uh, you have to be, take action. You have to be serious about it. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. This is WERU 89.9 in Orland, Maine. Uh, this is Let's Talk Animals, Dr. John Hunt, your host. And we're talking with Al May, who is a, I still call him a gentleman farmer. He's talking about how he, he's developed a farm up in Truscott and all the things that uh, go into it. And we're just talking about resources going to the USDA. Uh, there's grants and loans and information, but you have to be persistent and uh, serious. Can't just go in there and with your palm up. Uh, what kind of investments did you have to make uh, initially for the first five to 10 years to get things going? I know you had lopping shears and a bow saw, but what else did you need? Yeah, so working in the forest every week, uh, that was my, uh, that was my, so you got to understand too. I, so I bought the place in the 2006. I moved in the summer of 2007. I was still working in Augusta. So um, I would leave uh, the farm on Monday morning, like four o'clock in the morning to get to Augusta. And I would be in Augusta from Monday through Thursday working. So I wasn't at the farm. Uh, and then I'd come back Thursday night. So I did 10 hour days typically uh, in Augusta to make sure I'd get out and get those hours done. This is before so we're talking about 2006, 2007. So we weren't into the, the Zoom world yet. Zoom wasn't even around yet. So we that wasn't available. Um, so I would only have Thursday, by the time driving back Thursday night, especially in the winter, uh, it took me usually, number one, the heat was off during the week uh, because I didn't want to run the heat while I was there. So I usually took a day for the house to sort of normalize itself, uh, especially in the winter time. 
So I had Friday, Saturday, and Sunday where I basically got in the woods and just started working in the woods. I didn't have a wood stove, but I basically tried to start cut wood for the wood stove when it first when it would come down the lane. Uh, but really, it was about limbing and doing a lot of that and opening up areas, uh, trying to get rid of uh, diseased trees if I saw them. Uh, one of the things that we find in Maine, but a lot of times in Washington County, on on cherry type trees is something called black knot. You'll see this black kind of fungus growing on trees and it's very contagious and it actually destroys cherry trees. Um, and typically up in our area and, and most of Maine, those are choke cherries and people don't think it's a big deal. But if you have it on choke cherries, it actually, actually will move sometimes to apple trees. But typically if you have cherry trees, if you have prune or plum trees, they're in the same family. So it'll actually attack those trees too. And they do, once you have it on a tree, you have to, you're supposed to actually burn that, uh, cut the tree down and then burn it because that fungus um, will spread very easily. Uh, and you're actually supposed to, when you have using lopping spears or saw, you're actually supposed to bleach those things because they, they actually sit on the saw and can be transmitted to other trees when you do pruning. Um, so I spent a lot of time just opening the forest up, getting an idea, walking around, laying out uh, trails, uh, finding where, again, this is another big issue in, in Maine and especially rural Maine, trying to find where the boundaries were, <laughs> where people lived and where the properties yeah, a, were. Yeah, were places aren't surveyed. And yeah. we had, before I had bought the place about a year beforehand, I know John knows this because it was his, all his properties were impacted up there as families. We had another property where somebody called in a logger. They had no idea where the property lines were. And they crossed over four different property lines um, and cut places they weren't supposed to cut because they were not given any instructions. And, you know, I think in, in central Maine, where there's a lot more where you typically have a forester come in and lay that out, that gets controlled better. But up in our area in Washington County, probably in, in some of the more rural areas of Panopka and Roostick, that doesn't happen. These people just get in there. They think they know the line and they cross over. And that's obviously illegal. You're cutting people's other land. And that could be a real problem. So, and it, of course, it also sets up some real disagreements between neighbors. So, well, Even if you look at the deeds, it says uh, at a point of a big boulder, uh, yes. go 100 feet south to a big tree. And then go along the fence line. I mean, that's yeah. And that was a hundred years ago. So one of the deeds, first, yeah, one of the first things I did was get a survey done on the yeah. property, and I found actually that um, the the state the state uh, uh, maps were wrong. Uh, there were about five acres at the top of the of the property that was actually cut by this thing by this uh, woodcutter, and it was actually not their property. It was the, the property on mine? And but the beads. But the pictures had shown it being long to that other person. So that's an issue. So the survey helped that. And after I got started surveying, a number of the neighbors in the area started surveying too to make sure those lines were clear. So, so a lesson survey, and, sur and lesson learned. And surveys are not cheap, but I will tell you, oh. it's sure, it sure in the long run, is a, it, it gives more value to your property, but it also just lets you know what you have. Yeah, yeah. And for legal reasons, it's, uh, it, it, and it's, and it's something that probably everyone especially in Washington County, you should do invest a couple thousand dollars in, in the survey. And the surveyors have a heck of a time too. They they'll, go, they'll go back on deeds and find out that the deed wasn't properly transferred. And right. this and that. I mean, it's just, it's a mess because yeah. it was so casual. Land was sold on a handshake. Yeah. And they wrote and, it on a piece and, of paper. And, and, and we're talking, you know, uh, John's family, I think 
his father, I think, bought the properties in the 60s. Right. Uh, but that area of Trescott, which is on the coast, is, was considered historically South Trescott. Uh, it's on Bailey's Mistake. Um, that goes back to the early 1800s. That was a site because there was an open harbor there yeah. that people actually had a sawmill. There was an old, there was an old uh, cannery there. Um, that's still standing. It's in good, decent shape. It's not being used as sort of a historical site. But because of that opening there and where people could come in, um, there was some, de- some development there. There were some churches there. Um, and so the, these farms, you can actually find um, remnants of old uh, paddocks, you know, and, and trees that right now are probably 75 to 80 years old have wires going right to the middle of them yeah. uh, because they basically have sucked in that, that, that chain link fence that was there. And that's what, uh, you know, a lot of the surveyors will use as, as uh, evidence that there was a line there at one time. The problem is some of those things were just paddocks. They weren't the actual property lines. Um, so you'll see that on the surveys now we found, this chain length fence or this, uh, this um, barbed wire barbed wire, or something yeah. like that. And they use that as a marker. So I went out with a, uh, an older forester on the farm next year, as we call it the big farm and spent a long, a lot of time with him. And he was expert at finding um, hints and areas where the, where the line would go like buried barbed wire or little scars. It, it was amazing what he, he was like an Indian looking at all the different subtleties of, of property lines. So what kind of investments did you have to make I, um, besides surveying the land? Equipment, um, you, you bought the, whatever you call, I call it the greenhouse, but you called it something else. I remember. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, uh, ladders, of course, are important to climb up trees, but I, a lot of that you just cut and start limbing, especially for softwood trees, you just start using the smaller limbs to get up to certain heights. Um, I used a lot of the regular saws, the, the hand saws, the, the, pl- the pruner cutters. Um, obviously, down the line, chainsaws come into, to come into a, a importance, not necessarily for climbing up with the chainsaw, because I'm not that proficient, but for cutting down trees and, and obviously bucking them up and for firewood and such. Um, I think the, 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 it's really my time was the investment uh, of going out and doing it and using hand tools. I, I, I think chainsaws are important. I just don't like the noise. So I like doing things from a quiet standpoint. I still will have a, 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 a wood pile of things that aren't, you know, maybe, maybe four to five inches thick and I'll still use a handsaw on them because it's just important to me to have that quietness. Um, but of course, you know, people are going to say, come on, Al, this is, you need to use a chainsaw too. And I do <laughs> certainly use chainsaws too. Um, um, the, the other thing that's important, I think, is um, you want the land to, to try to work for itself. Uh, you know, it, I, I remember one time working for a person in a house and we were carrying sheetrock and the person said, you're doing it all wrong. You're making the sheetrock work you. You need to work the sheetrock. And what's, what's, what's the way of doing that? Same thing with land. And so, you know, we talked about five-year plans and certainly, um, I don't know if this happens enough in, in Maine. I think some people do a good job of it, but rotating guard plots, uh, fields, you know, making sure there's enough uh, nutrients and quality and keeping disease and insects controlled. So for example, um, someone might put rows of corn in. Corn's one of the hardest things on the land. It takes so many nutrients out. And the ideal thing would be to, once you harvest corn and knock the sheath, the, sheath, the, the, 
the plant down is to plant some kind of cover crop for the winter to protect that soil. So a rye or uh, uh, some kind of legume like a, um, uh, uh, a clover or uh, alfalfa would be great in there over the winter to cover that up. And then you ground that back in because that provides nitrogen and other nutrients to the soil. We don't do that enough. And that, and you know, I will tell you that historically, People just think about the 1940s, the 1930s and 40s, the Depression, but what really caused the huge issue in the Midwest at that time was the Dust Bowl because people were using conditions and they didn't use cover crops um, and it really caused problems. So I think it's important that people do that, um, to have plans every year, rotational plans, uh, using different things. I, Because of bees, I have honeybees, it's important to plant types of crops that are good for honeybees, for nectar and pollen. Like I use buckwheat a lot. Um, I found some other things that they, they enjoy. They like white clover. Uh, they don't like red clover. Uh, and the reason is because their tongues do something different. They can only do certain much with their tongue where you'll find bumblebees on red clover because their tongue is different. Um, so it's these little idiosyncrasies you have to know about the different types of plants that you do. Um, I have neighbors now up and down the road and in, in the spring, they won't cut dandelions because they know my bees need the dandelions for nectar in April and May. They'll wait um, and, and they, they see a bee on it, they'll go around it. And this is, you know, it's just, it's owls bees. It's owls bees, thing. leave them alone. Yeah. <laughs> So, so when you say you're, you're planting things, are these like, uh, some people may have the image of big fields, but you don't have that. You're, you're like small no. plots. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, so there might be a plot of 10 by 10. There might be a plot of, so I've, you know, half an acre, maybe even with the most typical, yeah. so it's a third of an acre, a quarter of an acre. The ponds have a big field that I've tried to plant and it's all clay. That's the other issue we have. And, you know, I, I remember there was a movie back in 1962 called How the West Was Won, mm -hmm. uh, a great epic movie of the West, people moving out. And Carl Malden had a quote that I think about Maine all the time. And I don't think he was specifically talking about Maine, but he was talking about the Northeast. And he said, he told somebody, I'm going to the West because I want to farm because mostly our trouble East was rocks. I had me a farm where some years I raised hundred bushels of rocks to the acre. And that's what we see in Maine, obviously, yeah. uh, because of the, the ledge. And we also have on the coast, marine, marine clay, which is horrible to, to, to work in. Uh, it holds moisture longer. Uh, it's hard. It's a colder climate. And to break that up, I don't have to tell people, if you've been there and it just rained and you're in there working there, it is glued to your shoes and everything around you. It's a pretty tough stuff. So, And the other thing we have in Washington County and in Hancock County is if you don't have clay, you've got sand and ledge. And that's why we have the blueberry fields, <laughs> because they're the only things that grow in that, that and white pine. So we're, we're limited. We're not California. We're not, I mean, that's a good thing about that, but we're not California <laughs> from an agricultural standpoint. We're not even New York and some of the other big states, but we still have, we've got soil. We've got land. We can do some things here. Hay is the great thing. We have a lot of fields here that are just left alone and not taken care of. And you're saying, what, what do you need for hay fields? Well, number one, we have a lot of acid here acid in the air and acid in their field. So just liming every other year would be great and, and, and cut, making sure they're cut every year. Um, John, your, your big farm had a beautiful fields. You guys wow. used to keep up and got, Hey, they've been left alone for the last 10 years. And now there's alder growing up. And I saw that. Junk. And uh, that field is going to probably take two to three years to come back uh, with, 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 with the, you know, implementation of lime, cutting it constantly, getting some of the brush down, maybe running, 
my geese or if someone's got some horses or stuff getting manure out there to that place and it'll probably come back it just is it doesn't take long for these fields to go to go bad quickly and it's it's a shame because it's a resource yeah those alders are something else yeah i i saw that uh, last time i came up when i visited you and that that field which is uh it was a gorgeous field. It's gone to heck. It's it's horrible thing to see. The other thing that I think Washington County and Hancock County both have, which I think is surprising to people, and again, it's a resource that we just don't utilize. We have apple trees everywhere, uh, and they're growing wild, or they're growing that you know people probably for fifty years ago may have put them in. They're showing up spotty. Sometimes with small orchards. Uh, and they've survived. They survived being, uh, I've been in woods where, um, you know, the, the undercover has, has picked up with fir and spruce. And you walk through there and there is this apple tree that has now elongated its limbs. So it's still getting sun and <laughs> is putting out apples. Um, now, they're not the best apples. They're nothing compared to what you find in, in central Maine, in Manchester, where we have mo- most of the big growers. Uh, but they're still, some of them are very good. And um, again, it, it means we need to go out and prune those trees and keep those trees in good shape and do some work on them. Um, that's what we've done on the Jones Road. We've worked with neighbors. I've been out there every spring and we've got a plan here in the next two weeks to start going out and pruning uh, some of the trees to keep them up. We found, I found a, some new neighbors bought a place down the road from us this last year. And I said, do you mind if I go out and do some cutting of trees? And I did that last year. This one tree came back and it has a wonderful apple. It must be like a Granny Smith type, but it's got a beautiful apple. And again, it, you know, we just found it and it, it, you know, did a little bit of work. I'm going to do some more work on it this year. And there's an art to pruning too. these trees. You don't just go cut the tree down. You give it a chance and you prune. It used to be the model, a third, a third of a third cutting every year. Uh, you try to get the dead stuff out and you try to get other things out, but you want to bring those trees back because they, again, what, what do we have here? That's a resource that we can use for people. And I don't mean necessarily economically. I mean, a resource for people to use for recreation, enjoyment, those kind of things. I've got a neighbor down the road. She goes out and collects apples and she's got a dryer and she gives that as gifts. She dries the apples. She slices them up and dries them and puts them in packages and gives them as gifts for Christmas. <laughs> I mean, it's just these really clever ideas. It doesn't yeah. take much for people to think these things through. Now your pond has trout and frogs, but you've introduced other animals. This is show is called Let's Talk Animals. Yeah. So, uh, what kind of animals ha- do you have? So I, since um, so I like I said I grew up in Los Angeles. Of course, I I had dogs, and of course, as a kid, you'd have hamsters and all the other guinea pigs and fish and all the all the good stuff. But uh, I always liked dogs. And when I was in Alaska, um, I had I had a, I had a number of uh, Labradors and Chesapeake's, uh, either myself or I helped another person. He had Chesapeake's. We sort of had this retriever battle of which was the better breed. Um, <laughs> and actually, I like both breeds. The Chesapeake's are a great great breed. I don't have a dog now. I still every year say I'm going to get a dog or two. And I know you, you've been a great dog person, uh, rescuing dogs. So I still would like to do that. But um, when I was in Alaska, I lived on a houseboat and I actually got 10 ducks. I was a duck hunter, a duck and waterfowl hunter. I really liked them. And to better understand that and understand this, them, uh, I bought, uh, I bought like 15 ducks and I had them on the houseboat with me. 
Uh, I put them out during the day. They would go out on the salt water. I lived on, on salt water. And um, then I'd bring them in at night. And I learned a lot about the physiology and how ducks think. Uh, and you're going to say that's ridiculous. But uh, it's important to know their habits and what they do. And again, from a hunting standpoint, these are domestic ducks, but you still learn a little bit about them. Uh, so maybe a better hunter um, and understanding that, but also just the idea of having them and can, working with them. Uh, when I came to Maine, that was the first thing I did when I was in in, um, in Monmouth is I had ducks, um, various types. And then I also, like one year I had pigs because I thought pigs were a very interesting animal. Um, up here in Monmouth, up here in, uh, in Trescott, I've had, I started with ducks uh, with the idea of providing uh, the eggs to the local pantry. So I do that every year. Um, and I've done that now, I'd say probably at least eight years uh, of every year giving uh, ducks. The ducks, of course, don't lay as much in the winter, so I don't obviously give then. It's typically a April through October uh, initiative. So every month I bring in, you know, 15 to 20 dozen eggs to the pantry. Uh, and duck eggs, a lot of people like them. A lot of people say, oh my God, duck eggs, what the heck? But um, you look historically and look at culturally, uh, European countries typically use duck eggs more than anything else. They have a, a, a certain more of white uh, part of the egg, and that's good for baking. And so that's an important thing for a lot of people, especially the French, they like duck eggs. And when I was in Monmouth, I had a gentleman um, helper come out and he lived in Lewiston and he would take a dozen, he would take probably 10, 12 dozen of my eggs and bring them into Lewiston. And he would just charm the ladies, especially the French ladies, because they loved the duck eggs. And I think he was doing it for other means, but uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, it was an interesting story. And he was a, he was a, he was an, I was a tall Irishman, very charming man, young man. And uh, it was, it was fine with me, whatever, whatever he wanted to do. Um, I, when I got the place with all the land next door and, and such, um, I wanted to try geese. And so I've made an effort to have, besides the ducks, I've had geese. Uh, I've tried different varieties. Uh, they're more expensive, but they are probably the hardiest animal. Uh, I can leave them out all winter without cover, uh, and they just survive very well in all cold weather. Um, and most people think geese, and they think they're horrible. They bite. Yes, they do bite until um, they get to know you. They're great watchdogs. Um, they're excellent grass eaters. Uh, that's what they really prefer. So I could put them on an area and they'll mow the grass for me. Uh, if there's enough of them. Uh, they manure, obviously. People <laughs> know that if they play golf. Um, but uh, they're really an interesting animal. Very smart. Uh, excellent parents. Um, they only lay eggs uh, in the spring. I'm right now. This is probably the worst time for me with geese from starting in February through April because they're pairing up right now. The males are fighting all the time for a female. And I currently have four nests uh, that have uh, about 12 eggs in each nest. The females are on them, laying them. I just did my first candling yesterday. And the one nest, I'd say half of the eggs uh, have already the formation of an embryo. Um, the other ones don't yet because they're ju they've just started laying, uh, started to sit on them. And it's, and it's been very cold. So um, they're outside. They're, they have one inside, but that was a fairly recent uh, one. So that's really interesting, learning all about the anatomy, the physiology, and the, um, the understanding of how they mate and all that type of thing. It's, it's interesting. Um, In terms of the, the other farm, farm aspect, is inter, inter, before you go on, the geese. So they're important because they can supply eggs for you. I mean, what, what is it? What, how do they contribute to the farm? Main, maintaining grass and, and I don't know, do they eat insects at all? 
maintain, mm -hmm. uh, they don't eat insects. They're mostly grass eater. Um, they chew a lot. They like to chew all the time. Uh, so that's why they take fencing apart. They will take things apart. Um, the advantage of geese are, uh, before turkeys were, were discovered in America, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas was a goose dinner. And that's still important in, in Europe. And I, I really thought about a model of, of providing goose meat to stores. Uh, the issue around in Maine is we still don't have a decent law that allows farmers to do their own uh, butchering. You have to go through a process and really go through a, a butchering process and have a license for that. And we have a couple in Washington County, but um, that's typically for chickens. Um, or, or wild animals. You know, someone wants to bring a bear to somebody, they'll butcher it for them. The problem with geese and ducks is they have two layers. They have a lower uh, inner layer of, of, of fluff, uh, and they have the outside feather, where chickens only have the feathers. And so there's an extra cost because they have to strip all that extra stuff off the down. And so that's more, uh, they actually have a little more oil than chickens do, so that's an issue. And so um, I haven't found a, a clear distributor who I could take these to and get done and, and make it somewhat profitable. Um, it's not profitable right now. Um, I will tell you though, that uh, since I started raising uh, turkeys, there's a, a farm in Vermont who took the same idea and they have, I think, um, I think a hundred geese at a time. And they've actually modeled it to, um, they run, they run free. Um, and um, they actually in Vermont, it seems to have a better um, law about, them they got they got a license and they actually do their own butchering on the property and um and so they sell the meat so my idea was to sell meat at one time not the eggs the eggs are quite large and people are overwhelmed by them the eggs were really for um there, uh, there are two things number one for uh, procreation you know having another litter or having more or geese but the other thing is geese eggs are quite large, if you can imagine. Duck eggs are large enough. They're larger than chicken eggs. But um, what I did when I first got the, 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 the goose eggs first year is I actually uh, blew out the inside of them. I just you put two holes on each end. And I saved them for people who do what are called Ukrainian Easter eggs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I wanted to get into that market. And um, it just I just couldn't find. There, there are people that do that. And people don't know what that means. It's a, it's a style of painting eggs for Easter. Um, and they, they use a waxing methodology. And then you paint over the wax. And you wax again. And then you seal the eggs. And they're beautiful. They're a Russian-Ukrainian idea. And they can be really beautiful, artistically done. Um, so I have a box of empty eggs right now that's ready for somebody to take them. Uh, I had a few people interested, but they moved away. And um, so that's another op. You know, you're always looking for innovation. So the geese are really, I've, I've just been, I hate to say it, enamored by geese. Um, they've become almost like pets. I mean, but at the same time, when, they, when it comes time to butchering them, I still butcher them. So it's not like... I'm not going to butcher a dog. So, you know, <laughs> so it's, they're not that kind of a pet, but they still. Yeah. So I have the, the geese, the ducks. I have had chickens. Uh, I don't care for chickens as much, but I'll tell you a story. I had a couple of roosters, uh, which, of course, are a blessing and not um, because they, they start anytime there's a light, they make noises in the morning. Or yes, I know. <laughs> um, but I had uh, two of these uh, New Hampshire Reds 
an excellent breed, by the way, New Hampshire Reds. People think about Rhode Island Reds, and the New Hampshire Reds are really a nice breed. And I had these two males, and they would basically, anytime I would pick up a duck, a goose, another animal, they would come over and pretty much tell me that I was doing something wrong, and they'd actually spike me. <laughs> because oh they, wanted to protect, they wanted to protect anything out there. But the one story I had is I had some uh, about a 15 turkeys that come through the area. And I'm watching these turkeys come down the hill from up by the pond. And uh, they're just minding their own business, eating, you know, bugs and stuff. And and these roosters saw them and just high-stepped up that hill and chased those turkeys away. <laughs> and the turkeys are like three times the size of these two roosters. And they just went up and took those. So I felt, well, that's pretty good. They're kind of like watchdogs. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'll get probably back chickens down the line. I, they're I, they're enjoyable too, um, and then of course I have honeybees. So um, that was something I wanted to do for many years, and I got my first honeybees when I was in Monmouth, and I've tried to have them. And that used to be a hobby; it no longer is a hobby. It's become uh, a quite an expense because of the varroa mite, and um, it's just it's really it's. It's animal husbandry to another level of, of the, the treatments you have to do and the protections you have to do. And um, it's, it's, it's a world all by itself, uh, trying to learn how to keep honeybees. I had five pretty strong hives going into the winter. I thought as of February, they all five were in good shape. And then we had um, that, that heavy snow and rain and uh, ice that hit for about two or three weeks in February with the cold weather. And I lost all the hives. So um, it's just in that time frame, the moisture. Uh, and I, I think we're, there's a number of people in Maine are thinking because um, the weather changes so much. Um, you know, us as humans, we can adapt fairly well because we have clothes, we can get to a house. These animals can adapt, these insects especially. They're, they're used to keeping, the hives keep at 90 degrees, 95 degrees all the time. And for them to keep that thing and from going from a 40 degree day and then the next day it goes to minus 10, they just can't react that fast. And uh, the moisture builds up in there and moisture is a killer for bees. If it doesn't get extracted well enough in the hive, uh, it sits in there, they get wet, they get cold and they die. And I think that's what happened in, that, in those two weeks of February. Um, they just had, it, it just overwhelmed them besides the mites. Um, so are you going to learning? Are you going to try to keep going or are you going to give up on the bees? No, I gave it about two years ago. I gave up for a year. I took off. Um, and then I built up again last year. Uh, the nice thing is, um, having bees in an area, typically one or two or three of your hives will actually swarm in the summer and they'll go off uh, the, the hive a swarm is like a split of a hive and they'll go off. And I typically every year will get a swarm come back. So Ooh, that nice. swarm that left will come back. I'll have some open hives living around and I'll find one day in June, a nice warm day and there's bees inside an empty hive. So, and then I'll just get them back and I'll have a swarm. Um, <laughs> I used to go capture swarms when I knew about them, but um there's enough bees in the area, resident bees in the area that when they split, they'll come, they know this area, they know my hive, so they'll come back. Uh, one of the things you, I remember you doing uh, with your ducks, maybe it's the chickens is just like you did in, in uh, Alaska is you use your home as part of their, uh, their, their home. You hatched them in your house. So you use your house as part of your, well, and so that gets to another question I think you had um, or we talked about. And um, farming is is a risk. Um, 
Certainly, it's a risk from weather standpoint to try to keep animals inside. And I mentioned the geese can stay outside, and they really have very little predators. I've been out there in the middle of night where raccoons will be in the pens with the geese, and the geese will have them basically cowering in the corner, but the raccoons go in there to find scraps of, 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 of food. They will not bother the geese. Um, but that's not the same for ducks. If I had ducks out there, that, that raccoon would tear those ducks apart, and you'd go out there, and there'd be, you know, five or six ducks completely just just eaten you know not even eaten just chopped on and and uh, raccoons do some damage so you have to be careful and you have to make sure that you've got coverage for these animals um so um i'm trying to remember i lost the train of my thought here you were trying to get me why, to talk about why you use why you use the inside of your house oh yes so uh, so typically I, I think people who've raised chickens before know that you have to have a brood area for them uh, because they need to have heat. Uh, the nice thing about ducks and, and geese is when they're small like that, uh, I don't find that they need that same amount of heat. And so uh, I can keep them in a cool area as long as they don't wind on them. I bring them into a part of the house that uh, there's some warmth to them, but they basically are enclosed. And I would start them off if they're day old or two, I put them in a small box uh, with uh, you know, litter in there and then I feed them and stuff and they, and then I can cover them up and they can stay in there. I give them blankets and they do fine that way. Um, chickens are a little more delicate. Um, I've heard turkeys are even worse. Uh, they're really not very good when they're babies. So you really have to take care of them. I just, um, because I work away from the house during the day, I, when I was, this was before COVID, I didn't want to leave electric lights going and stuff like that because I'm, I'll, just like anybody in Maine, we're just in old houses and with old wiring, you're just worried about a fire. And so I try to keep as much electricity down in the house while I'm gone. Um, so it's better to figure out other ways of keeping them warm. And so far, the ducks and geese especially are, are pretty good. After about two or three days, they don't need anything. They're, they're pretty tough little guys. So yeah, so I'll bring them inside. I have a nest inside the house right now of of uh, two young geese. Um, the male was beaten up so badly, he's got hardly any feathers. So I put him inside and then brought him a girlfriend and they've actually started a nest in the house. They go out during the day and then I bring them in at night and she sits on the nest, she keeps it clean. Um, and so we'll see how that how that turns out. So do you have any, you said you may want to get back to chickens, any other animals you want to add? And what would you advise someone who's thinking about a small farm, uh, how would you how would you advise someone in, in selecting the kind of animals you put on the farm? Well, so my job uh, in with Maine CDC and working with social services folks and stuff, what it what, what's interesting to me is, um, and I know animals are are good for the soul, and so we find people that uh, will get animals even though they don't have the economics uh, or the or the mainstay to keep them. And animals cost a lot of money. Uh, this is you know I'm lucky enough to have animals that don't really use a vet and nothing against Dr. John here, but uh, vets, <laughs> no can be, taken. vets can be an expensive uh, issue, especially with dogs, cats, horses, um, and, and, and cows, I guess, and sheep. Um, I've picked animals that typically don't, but I will tell you, um, certainly um, when I had ducks and geese and pigs and I'd go to work, people said, Al, you've got the natural sight 
an environment for influenza <laughs> because ducks, <laughs> ducks and pigs and humans are the ones that transmit influenza back and forth to each other. So I was always interested in that. Avian influenza is a huge issue uh, with my animals. So I got to be careful if there's any wild ones that intermix and they typically don't, but I have certainly Canadian geese around and other and, uh, you know, geese. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed pigs. Um, I thought they're a great animal. They're lovable. If they, they don't, they're not the type of thing you see. They, you know, people see them in mud and guck and all that kind of stuff. They don't like living that way. They only do that as a protection. But if you go into the Midwest um, and you go onto the open fields out there, you'll see these little A-frames and you'll see a little snout pig sticking out. That's a pig. And they're out there on free range and they love it. And they'll go into those little houses because during the hot part of the day in the sun, they're very sensitive. Uh, they don't have any hair on their skin or very little. So they're sensitive to sun. That's why they used to get in the mud to protect their skin. But uh, pigs are a really smart animal. They'll do a lot for the farm. I mean, that in the, the, the old adage for a pig farmer was they're the mortgage keep mortgage keeper. I mean, they were the ones that, that saved your mortgage. So we have just a couple more minutes. Uh, yeah. any, anything uh, wise uh, advice or just share a little bit about some of your harrowing experiences. You've got, uh, you know, you've had some bobcats and, and the like predators. And yeah, obviously honey attracts bears and I've had, bear attacks on the hives and certainly that needs some protection usually electric fences uh, people have found that that works though i found that even with electric fences some people have had moose crash right through the electric fence and knock the beehives over they don't they're not doing for the honey they're just just moose yeah um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, bears are obviously bears will tear up a hive pretty badly um the only issue i've had with uh, geese um is owls uh, great horned owls will actually come in. Uh, I don't know if people know great horned owls, but the way they attack at night, they actually have um, on their, um, they have uh, like a razor blade for uh, a talon and they'll actually jump a goose at night, slit its throat and bleed it and, and walk away from it. And you know, it's an owl because they'll typically just hit the neck area and nothing on the body because they don't have enough time and they'll come back later. So owls are a problem and that's why it's important probably to have coverage for them. Raccoons are always around. They're unbelievable animals. Uh, they can do a lot of damage. Um, I think that's probably it. Well, Al, this uh, time has gone by quickly. Um, hopefully, uh, the kind of experiences that you have shared with our listeners will help anyone interested in going into farming uh, as a vocation or hobby. It's a lot of work, as you have implied, but there's a lot of help out there. And if you put the work into it and, and uh, get the help, you could have a very rewarding experience from what I gathered from you. And getting back to my, my field of public health, being outside, working in a garden and doing that stuff is great for your, you're getting exercise, you're getting fresh air, you're away from the television and watching the computer and it's good for your health. So, and you're Excellent. eating good vegetables. So, and fruit. There you go. So I'd like to sign off here. Thank you, Al May, for your sharing your experiences in small farm. Maybe we'll have you on again. This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. And remember, enjoy your pet and don't forget to give them a hug. Mm -hmm.